believe this is the fourth episode of Wholesome Chats. I started this podcast as part of a challenge. I wanted to see how much closer to my goals I could get in two weeks. So I set out to release a podcast speaking to my favourite people about my favourite subjects and in those two weeks Wholesome Chats was born. My experience recording this podcast has been a pleasant reminder of how fortunate I am to have so many brilliant people I can invite on this podcast and be a facilitator of thought-provoking and all-around wholesome content. One thing I would say all of my guests have in common is that they are empathetic people and they deeply care about positively contributing to the world around them whilst getting closer to the truth. Our guest today, Peter, is someone whose mind I would pay to simply spend a day in and be fascinated by all the wonderful dots it's capable of connecting. Peter has been involved in fascinating research projects around the world and has a wonderful perspective on what he has observed in his journey in life so far. Every opportunity I have to listen to Peter share his thoughts, I've consistently found myself enthralled and critically thinking about his perspective, including just before recording this podcast. Peter's found himself in different parts of the world learning as he goes along about the complexities of geopolitics, knowledge, truth, information, all through an incredibly empathetic lens. Today, we're lucky to hear from him as to what that journey has been like. Hey, Peter, it's uh, lovely to have you on Wholesome Chats. Tell us a bit more about you, what you do, and what motivates you as a human being. Hi, well, it's good to be here. Thank you for that really uh, humbling introduction. I think some of it's true. Maybe, hopefully, um, I can prove that today. Uh, And I hope maybe I've got something interesting to say. Uh, And all of our conversations we've ever had, I really enjoyed. This one's just slightly different because there's a couple of microphones between us. But yeah, yeah, I mean, what motivates me? uh, I think human contact motivates me. Listening to people, hearing people's stories really motivates me. yeah, I, I, I like to have as many different experiences as I can. So, yeah, I can probably hear from my accent that I'm, I'm Australian. I moved here about five years ago. I moved here after having spent over a decade in the Australian military, uh, which, as you said, um, gave me some interesting experiences, some good, some bad. I think perhaps at times you learn more from the bad than you do the good. Um, but, um, yeah, I think the one thing throughout all of that has been the enjoyment I've gained through meeting new people and that's how I always want to make my world bigger how can I meet new people and I think there's maybe lots of people in the world that see things differently that want their world to be just a small number of people um, but I always want more so yeah I think that's, yeah. that's where my motivation comes from I, I think we have that in common and I've never heard you vocalize that and I hadn't realized that about you but we definitely definitely have that in common and in fact we met whilst going through the same training process at Samaritans a charity to support people who may be going through a hard time. Uh, Now we're both involved in helping others become Samaritans and it's come sort of full circle. Since you became a Samaritan, I'd like to hear more about how your perception of empathy has evolved. Mm. And, you know, you spoke about wanting to sort of meet people and, and, you know, in some ways hear what their stories are. 
What, what would you define empathy as? I love uh, working for the Samaritans and I'm, I'm glad that I got to meet people like you there. And it's been a big part of my life for about the last, what's it been now? Three and a half? Three and a half. Yeah, years, so yeah. quite a while. Uh, empathy is an interesting one, right? So I think the definition, if you were to look it up in, in the dictionary, would say something along the lines of putting yourself in someone else's shoes or seeing the world through someone else's eyes. And I think that's true and accurate and, and a good way to think about it. But uh, I don't know whether it goes far enough sometimes. So, you know, there's this concept, I think actually maybe you brought this up at one point, of radical empathy, which yeah. is moving beyond just putting yourself in someone else's shoes to actually acting upon it. Mm. But I, I think even some ways that might not go far enough because what you think is adequate and, and appropriate action to help someone might not be the same as someone else. And also mm. in, in certain circumstances, uh, when we try and do our best to help someone, we might make a situation worse. And so what I like about Samaritans is that all we can ever really offer is a listening ear. Mm. And that's really great. But I think uh, having done Samaritans now for long enough to really reflect on it, you know, that's the non-judgmental part of being a Samaritan that I find the hardest and, and maybe the, also the most important individually because yeah. when you think about it, it's really easy to be empathetic with people that look at the world the same way you do or that have yeah. a similar background or come from a similar place. Uh, it becomes difficult when you're confronted with people that see the world very differently than you do. And I think that's why, you know, politics seems so divided these days. It's why, you know, countries seem to be pulling apart rather than coming together. And, you know, I mean, there's an example of, uh, you know, from, from my work recently, we had a, a young man uh, interviewed for a job at my, at my work and it was, he was one of a number of interns that we were interviewing over a day. And he asked that we provide a COVID safe environment for this interview. And, you know, my sort of reaction to that initially, and I'm not necessarily uh, proud to admit it, but I was a little bit, ah, oh, geez, okay, righto. Um, how's this going to work if he gets the job? Are we going to have him come in and have to wipe down all the desks, keep the windows open in the middle of winter? Are we all going to have to wear masks? Um, and obviously there were some issues around how do we coordinate an interview that's COVID safe, right? Um, you know, we had obviously had to wear masks. We separated the desk further. We opened the windows, despite the fact that it was quite cold. Anyway, comes in and we meet him. And in the process of having the interview, it sort of comes out that the reason that that was required is because he still lives at home and his mum's really, really ill. And she has various periods of treatment of which we're, we were in one at that time. And, and so actually all of that was an act of love by him right wow. but my initial reaction to it was one of uh defensiveness and almost as though i was under threat because my version of the world that i want to see right now which is that no one's going back to lockdown that the world is moving on was challenged by the fact that this one young man wanted to come in and have a COVID safe interview so that's where it becomes really difficult to be empathetic right because mm. i couldn't put myself in his shoes adequately because it threatened my own sense of priorities or, or, mm. or the wishes and desires that I had. Mm. Uh, it was, uh, I remember sitting there in an interview when he described, you know, his mother's illness and thought, gee, that's, that's really wonderful. Mm. And um, it, it made me positively disposed toward him, um, which is nice. But mm. if he hadn't brought that up in the interview, then I just would have maybe thought he was a bit, you know, overreacting or that he right. was making more of the whole thing that he needed. Right. That's interesting because it, it, it relates to sort of what I want to explore next, but in the workplace, there will be times where things need to be done, where 
what you know you you will have priorities or your bosses will have certain priorities that need to be to be met with a certain degree of empathy uh, of uh, uh, immediacy sorry and with 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 that in mind is you know similar to how you felt in with this intern coming in is there ever a point where empathy may not necessarily be the right choice or the optimal choice and with, well i think that being said is it is it a choice is it something that I think it can be a choice, but Mm. um, it's something that you need to exercise just like going to the gym and, and, you know, working out. You need to work out your empathy. Mm. But there's instances in in which it can come, uh, become a bit of a burden emotionally on yourself, right? If you're always being empathetic, you're always putting yourself in someone else's shoes, then it might become less clear what it is that you want and what it is oh, yeah. that, that will make you happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's plenty of people in this world that would probably lead a life that was exceedingly empathetic, mm-hmm. but maybe also really unhappy mm-hmm. and, and unsatisfied. So there's a balance there for mm-hmm. sure. Absolutely. So in, in terms of in the workplace, um, yeah, I mean, there are instances in well in, 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 when things need to be done mm-hmm. and, and maybe stopping and slowing down and being empathetic might get in the way of that. But... You know, I think as a rule, you can never really go wrong if you're trying to consider other people and, and their wants and needs. Agreed. Um, maybe Agreed. it can go too far, but I would always err on the side of empathy than whatever the opposite is. <laughs> a lack of, you know, lack, lack of, of empathy, yeah, a lack yeah. of awareness, a, a lack of sympathy. Yeah. You, you, you brought up something that I hadn't thought about bringing up, but I, I want to talk about it now. Mm-hmm. This instance in which someone may be too empathetic and mm. blur the lines of who they are and what they want and w- what other people uh, may be going through and feeling and what they may need. Is is there such a thing as being too empathetic? Yeah, and I think the word for that is uh, mother. <laughs> we've, all got, we've all got mothers like that, what you've just described. Yeah, I think... Um, you know, mine, mine, mine was certainly like that. But, I can uh, definitely relate to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think, y- yes. But um, maybe at times also being empathetic can become part of and, and being motherly mm-hmm. um, or caring about others becomes part of our identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe when our identities become really rigid and really firm, then it's maybe not a good thing, no matter what you've, no matter what you've chosen or what life has chosen for you to mm. center your idea of yourself around, um, holding on to it too tightly is probably never a good thing. Mm. Whether it's empathy, whether it's making millions of dollars as an entrepreneur, whether it's being a successful doctor, whatever it is. I agree. I agree. Mm. And, and thinking about what, what you do for a living mm-hmm. outside of Samaritans, in, in which instances do you find yourself having to be most empathetic i mean you've given a good example there already but are there any others that you found you find you have to really sort of tap into that empathy yeah i think um you know i'm fortunate enough to to manage a really great team of people um in my work um but there are instances where you need to be really empathetic and you need to understand well uh this particular person is having a bad day for a number of different reasons and and i think that comes down to understanding what's really important um, and, and being able to prioritize, um, and not taking any of it personally or sort of, I think, you know, I mean, people seem to take, 
their work really, really seriously these days, as though it's the only thing that they can hang their, you know, their sense of self on, right? And and that's probably not a good thing. And so if someone comes to me and says that they can't meet a deadline because something really awful's happened, or even if they're just not having a good day, uh, unless it, you know, I mean, unless I'm going to lose my job over it. So, yeah, I think that's that's. That's very challenging, right, though, because people might not have any other sense of how they build an identity other than to be good at their job or to be, um, you know, a, a tough boss or to be this or to be that. I'm not sure whether I've answered the question all that well, but um, I think there's opportunities for empathy in, in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. And and that, that, that applies not just to the empathy that you might show towards your family members. In fact, as, as you know, you probably know as well as I do being a Samaritan is that really at times the most difficult time to be empathetic is with people that you're emotionally attached oh, to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Because they, oh, you know, yeah. it's, your, it, it's your brother or it's your sister or it's your, you know, your son or your daughter and they might say that they're feeling unwell or they're, they're, they're struggling mentally and... And in some way, that almost feels like an attack on you. Yeah. It shouldn't, and I wish that we lived in a world where that wasn't the case, but mm-hmm. too often that is the case. Yeah. And that's what Samaritans is all about, right? That we provide this service for people to ring up and talk to someone who is completely emotionally disengaged with their existence. Oh, yeah. So nothing that this person says to me will impact my life other than whatever trauma I might take on by it being a difficult call. Yeah. Um, so there are instances to, to show empathy um, and actually it's probably easier to show empathy in the abstract than, than in the actual so what, what do you mean by well that? okay I think it's easy to say I'm empathetic toward refugees mm-hmm. um, but right, then, right. you know in a sort of broad way but then it might be difficult to actually uh, perform that empathy if you right. were to meet a refugee in person yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is probably fair enough in some instances but but also I think we can be empathetic, not just to, you know, and this is where I, what I was talking about before with trying to clear away your own level of judgment or, or that, that reaction that we have when we seem to be threatened or our sense of self is threatened. Mm-hmm. Uh, we react defensively. That's why it's harder to be empathetic with people that we love, mm-hmm. um, which, which seems really bizarre. It's one of the great <laughs> ironies of being human, oh, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we can strip those layers of um, self-concern away uh, that's how that's I think the the really that's that's the way you can be really empathetic radically empathetic Um, it's not easy it's totally not easy and then actually you could make an argument that to save the world we need to be empathetic not just to other humans which is hard enough but also to other creatures to uh, the planet as a whole to the atmosphere to every living being on this earth we need to be empathetic toward otherwise humanity might not have a future but we struggle it seems to be empathetic to our neighbors yeah uh, Yeah. and to ourselves actually we're hard on (laughs) ourselves so yeah that's gee this is kind of depressing to think about but (laughs) it's important to talk about yeah i think think so yeah yeah Yeah, i think expanding our moral universe is Mm. is generally how people refer to that as and it's 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 a really difficult thing i love that but what i've never heard that expanding your moral universe yeah but what i I like you know i was thinking about this on the way over here that that the title of your podcast is wholesome chat now something that's wholesome is generally just something considered that's Mm -hmm. beneficial to our well-being Mm -hmm. but actually if you break down the world word whole and some Mm. 
you know something that is wholesome is embodies a whole of some sort right and um we need to be thinking in those terms about the whole of our society the whole of the ecosystem the whole of the planet um but yet actually things seem to be moving in the opposite direction that we're thinking more uh individually uh more as a community or as a as a, as a rigidly defined community um, as opposed to a, a broadly defined community. Anyway, I'm, blabber, I'm blabbering. <laughs> I mean, these are incredible thoughts. Uh, and as you were giving that example of the the you know, us struggling to some extent, empathizing with our neighbors and people in our families, friends, etc., versus you know being Samaritans, the two of us being on a phone listening to complete strangers and and giving making time for them to to share how they're feeling. It, it came to mind that I was I was literally saying to my flatmate yesterday that I I haven't called my grandma for probably a few months, and I've been it's been on my list for for so long, and I I I know that the type of conversation I have with my grandma it can be quite profound and it can make me feel quite emotional because I know I want to be close to her. She's not in the in the UK at the moment, and I've been avoiding that conversation, but I every week for. A number of hours I'm speaking to complete strangers telling me how they're feeling so that that really like rang so true and mm. felt so relevant to something that I was mm. you know having a conversation about yesterday mm. and uh, I love that you sort of highlighted that yeah I think it's one of the great as I said before it's 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 sort of tragic really isn't it mm. that the, uh, the closer we are to someone and and you see this a lot with um, young people particularly, right? It's very difficult for teenagers to talk to their parents. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very difficult, say, if a, if a teenager is, uh, you know, going through some sort of personal crisis, maybe there's self-harming involved, mm -hmm. maybe there are suicidal thoughts involved. That is an incredibly difficult thing for a parent to deal with. Mm -hmm. And they are almost, by definition, the worst person in the world to try and deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, because they're probably only likely to make the situation worse than it is. Um, they can't hear anything coming out of their child's mouth that doesn't in some way feel like an attack. And, you know, how do you conquer that? Wow. It's really difficult. That's a brilliant point. Yeah. You, you it's where therapy that, comes in and it's where Samaritans and other organizations like that can play a role. That, mm. you, you mentioned earlier that you, you, you're fortunate to, to manage a team of people. Uh, a team of good people that they're good at what they do how would you describe your job so we um we do research um and it's around i guess broadly defined as international security mm -hmm. um and we write reports for an international body mm -hmm. and it's mostly on the topic of of nuclear non-proliferation mm -hmm. and, and what that is is um well, proliferation obviously is the, the spreading of uh, nuclear material and nuclear technology, particularly mm -hmm. those that might be used to build a weapon. Mm -hmm. And non-proliferation is just the reverse of that. How do mm -hmm. we stop that? Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting. Um, I sort of fell into it really. You know, my background is completely different, as I said before. Um, and, and in the last uh, two years, I've been doing some work a couple of days a week for a, a, a US-based nonprofit around... Um, how do we build a world that is less reliant on nuclear deterrence as right. its as its foundation of security? Mm -hmm. And that's 
it's one of the more interesting things I've ever worked on because it's led me to ask these questions and do some mm. research around well, what what sort of governance structures do we have? How does the world really work? What role do nuclear weapons play mm. in structuring the the international apparatus that we find? <laughs> and, and and these are big questions, right? And I've been really fortunate enough to be paid to try and produce some kind of like really terrible answer. <laughs> Uh, I mean, if it's coming from you and your team, uh, I'm mm. sure I'm sure it's useful. So, it, it, I mean, it's fair to say that your job involves dealing with a lot of information, uh, sharing that knowledge and hopefully uncovering the truth, um, connecting dots in a way that can help make important decisions. My thinking is, in your view, can information ever be objective? Or is it fair to say that the medium through which the information is shared will always influence the quality of the information? Yeah, I, I mean, my personal views on 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 objectivity and subjectivity are that it's 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 difficult. I think near impossible for any sort of information um, to be fully objective. That there are biases inherent in everything, and and at times it's really difficult to see that bias. Mm-hmm. And at times we we dress up information, we dress up data, we dress up knowledge in various forms as the objective truth. And you know, it's not to say that, that it can't be an accurate reflection of reality, um, but there, there is always some element of bias, there's always some element of, and we can see that a lot in, in the way that AI algorithms are being written. Um, you can see that a lot in, in the way big data is being used, that there are human-induced biases that tend to distort uh, in this information or tend to make it more relevant for some you know there are a lot of AI programs now that that, that struggle to recognize black faces for instance mm-hmm. because the the training data that was used was white men yeah. um, that's one obvious example but I think it, it it's it's prevalent everywhere mm-hmm. so uh, we only get into the trouble with information in my view and, uh, and it's just one view I'm mm-hmm. sure that, that people disagree but uh, we only get into trouble when we imagine that something is more objective than it might be, that it, that it is not just a reflection or a depiction of reality, our best guess, mm-hmm. it's actually reality. It is actually objective. We're confusing the map for the territory, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think of it in those terms, right. a map is only just uh, a reflection of reality. It's mm-hmm. not the earth itself. For a map to actually be reality, it would need to be a direct an exact copy of the world we see around us but no map is like that and i think it's important to think of any sort of knowledge any sort of truth claims as just a map as just an effort to depict reality but like maps right you've got maps that show you um, the best way to drive to coventry Mm -hmm. you've got maps that show you where all the rivers are you've got maps that you use when you go hiking Mm -hmm. you've got maps that you might use when you want to find uh, a certain type of geology Mm -hmm. right if you want to find a a coal to mine for instance you use a, a geological map so there are lots of different maps for lots of different purposes mm-hmm. and the same applies to knowledge and information. There's lots of different information, lots of different knowledges, mm-hmm. some of which apply in some situations, some of which don't. Mm-hmm. And it's finding which one applies when or, or, or which combination of maps might be the most effective mm-hmm. um, that I think brings us as close as we can towards what the goal should be, which is to solve any problems that we're faced with. Mm-hmm. It should never be to imagine that we've unlocked the secret of reality because as soon as we do that, uh, there'll be new secrets that we need to unlock. 
Wow. Um, so I think we, we imagine that, that, that somehow that there's a, uh, that the knowledge we see in front of us or the information that we see in front of us is not just objective, but it's final. Mm -hmm. And I think to, for something to be objective in many ways, it needs to be final. But science and knowledge and mm -hmm. information is never final. Mm -hmm. There's always more and there will always be more. If we fly to Jupiter, then we'll want to go to Saturn. Then we'll want to go to whatever comes after Saturn. You know, um, nothing will ever stand still and knowledge never stands still. Um, and I think that's my view on, on that. Yeah. Wow. And I've had, well, I mean, I, and I've had the pleasure, I guess, maybe of, of working in, uh, situations where, where we've had problems to solve, mm -hmm. um, mysteries, in fact, in some instances to try and solve. And I've seen these problems approached with just one map, mm -hmm. if we want to use that analogy more. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were instances where that map might not apply anymore, but then we weren't able to change it. It's like, for instance, if you were to build a bridge, right? Yeah. It seems like a really simple thing. Building a bridge is an engineering problem, mm -hmm. right? Okay. But what if building the bridge changes the way the river flows and it becomes a hydrological problem, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> what if yeah, you have yeah. to move people's homes in order to build the bridge? Then it yeah. becomes a social, maybe an anthropological problem. What mm -hmm. if you run out of money to build the bridge? Then it becomes an economic, maybe a political problem. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you've got this one really simple problem, mm -hmm. an engineering problem that has a very clear solution. Wow. And you've got a much bigger problem. What we've become really good at, I think, as a society is building the bridge, mm -hmm. but not doing any of the other stuff that's needed when you do that. Right. And, and so I think it's important to keep as many different problem-solving techniques up your sleeve as possible. Mm -hmm. And science is one of them. Mm -hmm. Engineering is another, mm -hmm. but they don't always apply. Um, so I, I was thinking on the way over here about uh, the pandemic, right? Like we're, yeah. we're, we're living in the wake of this pandemic. And what fascinated me, particularly earlier this year when the vaccine rollout was happening, was how successful the government was at rolling the vaccine out, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, probably saved Boris Johnson, right? Um, <laughs> but also, and as we've, we've been reading about this week, how terrible they were in the early phases yeah. of reacting and responding. And, and it's interesting to me is that the success of one, which is the vaccine rollout, is due to the same reasons as the failure for the first. Right. So the failure of the first, from what I understand, and certainly there's people that understand this much more than I do, but I've, mm -hmm. I've tried to keep up to date as best I can, was to some degree at least caused by the over-centralization of authority. So all of the decisions about what was going to happen in the early days of coronavirus was done, were, were made at in Whitehall, you know, even in number 10, even, even more centralized than the health department. And, and what that meant was that the individual NHS trusts throughout the country weren't able to try and approach the problem how best they might want to approach it. Mm. And, and that meant that there was a one-size-fit-all approach <clears throat> and that one size didn't really fit, mm -hmm. which, you know, maybe is fair enough. But if you'd had each every, in each and every hospital and each and every NHS trust trying their own approaches, mm -hmm. throwing things against the wall mm -hmm. to see what sticks, taking a bit of an experimental mindset, then you would have maybe found different solutions. You would have at least known that things don't work and maybe had the opportunity to try things that no one ever got an opportunity to try. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that when we came to the vaccine, that same centralization of decision-making was was perfect, right? It, it was exactly what was needed in order to solve what was a difficult problem, but one that was amenable to 
statistics, one that was amenable to some kind of modeling. Mm. Um, and, and so really the problem was you had this many arms and you had this many needles and you needed to find a way to get as many of one into the other, right? <laughs> so that's a mathematical problem yeah. in many ways, but trying to, trying to face a, a pandemic, a fast moving, non-linear, complicated, yeah. complex, uh, systemic issue like a, a growing pandemic yeah. that's different mm -hmm. and learning and being able to capture that learning and being able to experiment solutions is really important mm -hmm. um, yeah so I don't know whether I've covered that I know. wow I, I, <laughs> wow. I, I, I love this um, map, map analogy between sort of or mm. metaphor between maps and reality mm. uh, and there being various maps to depict similar parts of reality yeah in the in the work that you do, thinking back to what you touched on earlier, in that non-proliferation, ultimately there's a there's a desired action, there's a desired resolution to to an existing problem. How do you in you in 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 the work that you do make sure that you're using the right maps to mm. to drive that action and to bring about those solutions? I think a really important way that we've tried, so the role that we often play for this international organization is that we will um, be what's sort of called a red team, right? And this is a term that's come out of military thinking and, and so I've got some familiarity on it, but I know a lot of businesses do this sort of thing now whereby you find a solution to a problem or you, you think you've got some information and um, you want to have it tested, but it can't be you that tests it. So the role that we play for this international body is that they will give us a research task mm -hmm. and we will undertake this task. And it's one that they've already done themselves. And, and we see if we can find things that they can't find or if we can take right. an angle that they can't take. Right. And so for us, it's not so much about um, creating a map. It's about looking to see what parts of the landscape the map doesn't really depict that well. Wow. Um, so that, and that, that's in, and that's an interesting task, but in some ways there's less pressure on us, right? So if we don't find it, then, you know, they're happy, then they, you know, they know that they're doing that, that their processes and systems are effective. Mm. Um, but if we do f find things that they haven't found and they know that they need to look at not just the maps that they've drawn, but also how they go about drawing them. And, um, you know, we're really stretching this map analogy, <laughs> but, but it's true, right? I mean, any... You know, I think any map, and, and there's different types of maps, right? There's not just those that show a landscape. There are those that, you know, you might see a, a map of stakeholders. You might see an organizational chart, which is really a map in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, but all of them are what you could describe as an act of violence against reality. Mm. And never, they can never, ever, ever depict reality oh. effectively, right? They can only just be a representation. Mm. And it's when you start confusing that rep representation for the thing it's representing itself, that's when you get into that's trouble. That's when you get into trouble. I think. Yeah. In my humble <laughs> Australian <laughs> I think, opinion. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think we're aligned on that. Mm. Uh, in we, we, we started this, uh, this chat about when we were talking about information. And in some ways, we've already touched on the differences between information and the truth it may be trying to depict. Where would you say knowledge lies in that mix? What's the what's the difference between having information and possessing knowledge? Yeah, I think to me, information is just, I mean, you might describe it as data, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
knowledge is is well we have a very sort of narrow conception of what knowledge is particularly in 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 the uk but also you know more widely in what you might describe as the western world right it's very scientific based it's um it's what we might describe as empirical um so it can be tested um but there are other forms of other forms of knowledge um you know the indigenous forms of knowledge for instance um so i think there are there are times in which the scientific version of knowledge might actually fail mm. in its efforts to depict reality, to draw a map, to mm -hmm. use that analogy again. But um, And what science, particularly Western science, isn't generally very good at is recognising that as being the case. And just because something is unknown to science or it hasn't been tested or there hasn't been any experimental data on something mm. doesn't mean that it might not be uh, an effective way to solve a problem or it mm. might not be, you know, there's a lot of really good evidence around uh, or a lot of thinking around um, indigenous farming techniques, mm -hmm. which we're now starting to learn are far better for the environment, far, far better for the crops and for the longevity of the sorts of crops that, that these people and places mm -hmm. grow, um, that, that the monoculture farming approach that's been dominant in the West, that, that Western... Uh, consultants and experts have tried to spread throughout the world is actually really detrimental for soil. It's really mm. detrimental for um, the, the, the health of the plants itself. So, you know, so that's an example of local specialized knowledge um, that's come from a place that's rooted in a place mm -hmm. having an impact on how science itself. But, you know, if you wind the clock back 20 years, um, you know, the consensus in the scientific community was completely different. So mm. science keeps moving, but there are other f forms of knowledge. But I think also, you know, we talk about the difference between, you asked about the difference between information and knowledge, mm -hmm. but I think there's also a difference between learning and understanding. Mm. Um, science and our, what we consider science these days is very specialized. Right. So if you're a biologist and you're a biologist and you stick to that discipline and you don't really consider you know other other disciplines and how it might impact on what what it is that you do you know an example of the bridge before right mm -hmm. if you build bridges you build bridges you don't really care about the river you don't care about the people that live near the bridge mm -hmm. you just want to build a bridge mm -hmm. um understanding i think is different right so understanding comes largely from experience it comes from recognizing that there are multiple ways to solve a problem or that there are different types of problems that we might face. Mm -hmm. and, and understanding comes from recognizing that and being able to know which type of problem-solving method might be best in any given circumstance. I love that. I love that, the, the different problem-solving methods. And you're, I think, one of the first people that has uh, kind of... I've heard challenge uh, the scientific method and the way i see it one of the most important sources of truth and uh, objectivity in the way that we perceive it anyway in the 21st century already touched on it in some way is the scientific method a method des described as uh, a systematic observation measurement experimentation formulation uh, testing and modification of hypotheses so and you know you have that element of it being replicable and fallible when we think about the role that science has played in the modern world, in our lives, and certainly in your profession and mine, and what you touched on in terms of information having, being empirical, do you think that, you already gave an example there with the indigenous culture, but do you think the science 
is always the optimal method for uncovering uncovering the truth and subsequently proliferating knowledge in an effective manner that helps us solve problems as a species yes i think probably yes is the simple answer but science can be much more and science is not one thing there's not one monolithic version of what science is Mm -hmm. there are lots of different disciplines there are lots of different approaches within those disciplines Um, and i think science or some version of science is the best uh, method that we have as humans to optimize knowledge making as you as you described Mm but um but it doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't uh, that it shouldn't change, right? And I think there are, we need to have, I think there's one author I've read recently and she describes this process of democratic orchestration of knowledge. And, wow. and what she's describing really is that science can be so much more than just the really narrow, um, quite insular, very jar- jargon-ridden world in which most of us are outside of. And even if you're in one discipline deeply, you're likely to have no conception of how other disciplines work, what their cultures are like, what their methodologies are. Uh, and I think that's, you know, we need expertise, but, but mm. you know, as, as someone famously said, expertise is limited knowledge. Mm-hmm. So the more expert you become in one thing, very often the less able you are to see how other forms of knowledge work mm. and or to value them as, as, as problem-solving methods. And I mm-hmm. think... Um, Yes, we need more science, but we need to be also willing to, you know, I I like to, you know, I spend a lot of my adult life trying to determine if there's some kind of philosophical school that I belong to. Right. I I mean, it seems like the sort of thing that you would do too. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) And I don't know after, what, I'm almost 40 now, I don't think I'm any closer to an answer, but maybe that's a good thing. But there's one school of thought I really like, which is uh, pragmatism, and it's an American uh, discipline. It's Mm -hmm. got quite a lot in common with some of the, uh, theories of postmodernism, but it, it, you know, it, it really is just about the fact that we we've got to make use of what we have now, mm-hmm. but, but but then also be willing to turn our back on it when it fails us. So the measure of the usefulness, or sorry, the measure of how accurate or objective or whatever something is, isn't really important. Mm-hmm. That's not the right question. Mm-hmm. The right question is what's the best thing that we have right now to solve the problems that we have. Mm-hmm. So vaccines are a great, great idea, right? There's almost certainly a better way mm-hmm. to be found sometime in the future mm-hmm. to deal with viruses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that might be antiviral drugs. It might be this, it might be that. But mm-hmm. the best tool in our arsenal, the best tool in our toolbox right now mm-hmm. is vaccines. Mm-hmm. And so we should use vaccines. We should spend money on trying to develop vaccines. But as soon as vaccines run run their course and they're no longer useful or there's something that comes along that's better, we should change course and 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 seek that out and, and look to shift. And that's where I'm, I'm, you know, I talked before about throwing things against the wall. Mm-hmm. There's got to be an element of improvisation and experimentation mm-hmm. in all of this. But it seems like we, we get, I don't know, there's politics comes into science now and mm-hmm. people are... Um, you know, whether you get a, you know, a jab or not is, is as much a political statement as it is just an effort to ensure you don't get sick. Um, so all of this is very complicated and people are worried about science being undermined by disinformation online. You know, well, people have always questioned science um, and scientists themselves always question science. I think there's a risk at going too far in the other direction, which is to assume that science can solve all of our problems, mm-hmm. that science doesn't many times or very often if not 
almost always cause unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was science that gave us nuclear weapons. It was science that gave us many of the bad things that, that, that we live with. Mm-hmm. Science for many, many years, for centuries really, was really deeply entangled with colonialism mm-hmm. in ways that, that, that we should not be comfortable with now. So science has a checkered past. It's likely to have a checkered future. Mm-hmm. The secret source, I think, is to just recognize when its utility has run its course mm-hmm. And then find something else. It might be a different version of science. It might mm. be a discipline that we can't even think of now. Mm. But um, putting all of our faith in science mm. is is unlikely to solve any of the problems that we need to solve in the 21st century. It, it's wow. a big tool. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best tools that we have to try and do all of those things. But it's not the only one. It can't be the only one. Well, I, you strike me as someone that thinks very far ahead. Because I, I, I can't imagine coming to the conclusions that you have without projecting myself far into the future and thinking about the nature of the problems we're having to solve right now and how those may change over time to come to this conclusion that maybe science won't always be the best method to solve problems, uncover truth uh, and help find solutions. When I'm sure you thought about this to some extent already, but if we think about it today with some uh, some examples of the problems that we are faced in the 21st century, where do you think the boundaries of science's ability to mm-hmm. uncover the truth might lie and, and help find solutions to problems? Uh, that's a good question. Boundary questions are always tough, right? It's interesting because I think there's, there's uh, probably different answers depending on which science you're talking about because if you try and keep up with and and you know i don't really have the brain for it but i know that some of what's coming out in quantum mechanics these days is mm. like mind-bending mm-hmm. molecules can be mu- moving in unison despite being you know very very far apart that yeah. to me is absolutely and and that fundamentally changes our view of reality mm-hmm. but that's science that's given us that mm-hmm. that's really cool mm-hmm. and but it's a particular type of science it's physics yeah. um but there are other types of science that that that, that don't give us that type of new insight into what reality might actually mean yeah um so yeah I, I i'm not sure where the boundary is because i think science is just going to continue to grow and grow and grow but we the question isn't where the boundary is it's how willing we are to accept that there are things outside the boundary right um and and i think there are undoubtedly things that are outside the boundary you know i've got an interest in um paranormal activity for you know mm-hmm. and that's not because i believe in ghosts or, yeah, yeah. but I'm, I'm fascinated by the psychology of belief that people mm-hmm. spend you know there's these guys in america i will follow them on youtube and they spend all of their free time and thousands of dollars <laughs> on on ghost hunting equipment and but but what they have which so many of us have lost because we're hanging our, you know, our hat on the hook of science and nothing else. What these guys have, uh, and they're called the paranormies, if anyone's <laughs> interested, it's a great name. Uh, what they have is a sense of wonder. Yeah, yeah. They have a sense of wonder about the world. And I think we could all do with a bit of a sense of wonder about the world and about the things that we don't know. Um, because firstly, wonder is a motivator because you only really start answering questions when you can formulate them effectively and that's mm-hmm. what wonder gives you the opportunity to do but there are things that we can wonder about not just in the you know the parallel universe of paranormal activity which you know is 
probably not true, but there are things in the natural world that are really, really crazy. Mm. And, uh, you know, quantum mechanics is just one example of that. But, um, you know, the way whales communicate is something I've been like super fascinated <laughs> oh, yeah. about recently. Um, yeah, it's incredible. If you read about this, like, how, how do whales communicate? I'm really curious now. What, what have you learned? Well, you know, they've got these these songs, obviously, and the way those songs pass from pod to pod is is it, it, they can map it around the world, right? So right. a song might start in the Southern Ocean below Africa and then the next summer they're hearing it, um, you know, further west, but it's mm-hmm. traveled all the way around the world. Wow. But also they can now, I think sperm whales, for instance, can, you can pick out one individual sperm whale from others by by the tone of their voice by the sorts of things that they say um and 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 you know they can map the number of sounds so human languages seem to follow as my understanding of this is you know and it's again not great but i've got like surface level knowledge of all of these things but you know human languages um the curve, you know, if you were to if you graph out the appearance of each letter in the English language, right? There's 26 letters, and it follows a curve. So yeah. I think E is the most common sound, and then it's A, and then it follows and tracks all the way to X and Q or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you were to map that curve right onto other in, uh, human languages, it looks very much the same. Yeah, yeah. But what they've discovered is actually that there are some animals that have that make sounds, distinct sounds, and the appearance of those sounds follows the same curve as the human curve does. Now, that's fascinating because it means these animals are communicating with each other. They have what we would describe as a language. Mm -hmm. And so the question then is, what would they tell us if we were able to talk to them? (laughs) What sort of, you know, what sort of... That is definitely a sense of wonder. Yeah, uh, right. Seeing it demonstrate that. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and it's clear also that, that... dogs for instance you know Mm. dogs can sense things that we don't they have some other sort of sense that we don't have Mm -hmm. we have our five senses and so we just assume that every other being in the universe has the same thing Mm -hmm. but what i find really difficult to get my head around is that we're spending quite a lot of money and there's a lot of philanthropic money being spent on trying to hear um extraterrestrials hunt for extraterrestrials Mm -hmm. right but we assume somehow absurdly that we're going to be able to recognize the language when it's sent to us mm-hmm. despite the fact that the animals that we live around and have lived around for the entirety of our existence none of them have we ever understood we've never been able to understand the language of any other creature any other species on earth and yet we think we're just going to hear something from mars <laughs> and we're going to understand it no it's nonsense or that the creatures themselves um might be you know uh, less than a millimeter in size and like you know we don't know any of these things. Yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah. wonderful things to discover, and yet we have this really fixed idea of what reality is, and that's wow. I I think this next bit sort of brings it. Are all you feeling? Together. Are you feeling wonder? I'm feeling a lot of wonder. Good. I'm feeling a lot of wonder. <laughs> I mean, I I wanted to even break into something there about consciousness, but I held myself back because yeah. because that, that's a that's a whole. That's well, well it's, it's been assumed by science for so long that that animals don't have consciousness uh-huh. in the way that we do. That mm-hmm. that sense of awareness that the we exist within a body um but recent science is absolutely certain that most animals in fact do have a degree of consciousness i i i personally i'm biased towards believing that absolutely yeah yeah they they definitely do and i i I think we've 
or even scratch the surface. Well, this, is, this comes back to the question of empathy, right? Mm-hmm. Is that actually if we were to talk to a whale mm-hmm. and say, tell us a little bit about your existence, then we would probably feel a little bit more empathy toward them. And that, <laughs> might, that might make us mm-hmm. um, a little more aware of the damage that we're doing mm-hmm. to, to the natural world. And, you know, I, I love this idea that we could talk to animals and they mm-hmm. might just slap humanity out of its, you know, out of its malaise mm-hmm. and, and put us on a more righteous, wholesome path. <laughs> <laughs> I see we did that. That was excellent. Yeah. Uh, we've spoken about maps. We've spoken about the scientific method and we've spoken about truth. The way I see it, truth doesn't look the same in all parts of the world. And definitely when, we, when we're thinking about maps there, geography can play a role and knowledge is sometimes erased. Or maybe true for one generation, maybe completely wiped out for another. When we think about the role of nations, governments and political bodies, what role do you believe governments should play in preserving knowledge, information and truth? I love this question because it, it, it turns this whole assumption that we have that science and knowledge and, and information is moving inexorably, inexorably toward some endpoint, mm-hmm. um, and that's the sort of the, you know, the idea that we're going to reach some some point where maybe we can shoot off into the universe. Or, but actually, whilst we produce more and more knowledge every year, and and we see this in thousands of of journal papers, journal articles that are written, thousands of da- data sets that are created, surveys, interviews, whatever, all of this knowledge creation that, that goes on. There's an industry around it, a growing industry, uh, of which I'm part and I, I receive a salary for. Um, but I would probably suggest, and I'm not sure whether anyone's ever done the statistics on this, perhaps mm-hmm. they have, that we're maybe losing more knowledge than we're actually gaining. Mm-hmm. And you think about all of the, the sorts of uh, intuitive knowledge or the little skills that our grandparents and our great-grandparents had that we don't have now. You know, And you can think of things like knitting mm-hmm. or you know, cooking a particular type of food. Yeah. Um, but it, it's more than that, right? It's also land husbandry. Mm-hmm. It's also um, management of livestock. It's also mm-hmm. how to breed different types of animals. And mm-hmm. it, it, all of these skills that, that we've lost, mm-hmm. all of this knowledge that we've lost. And you ask what role states should play in preserving that. Well, I mean, states aren't really good at, at that type of thing to begin with but i would argue that they should probably find ways of capturing that knowledge but it needs to be done at the local level Mm -hmm. because you're quite right to frame this as a geography question Mm -hmm. because much of this knowledge is local knowledge Mm -hmm. and it's local knowledge about the way um avocados grow on this particular hillside Mm -hmm. now that's that might not seem really important in the grand scheme of things if our end point is to shoot off into the into the universe But for those living there, it might be really, really important. Mm-hmm. But global knowledge, global scientific knowledge has, has kind of come to stand in for all other forms of knowledge. And, and there's something that we lose in that. Um, what exactly it is and how best to preserve it, it's a question for people far smarter than me. But I think part of it is that we should have, you know, one, it's, it's a great story about uh, Andrew Carnegie, right? So mm-hmm. Andrew Carnegie was this... Um, I think it was steel. That, mm-hmm. that, that, yeah. yeah, he was steel. a steel baron. This was in the first... So we, a lot of people say that we're in the second Gilded Age now because mm-hmm. of tech money. The mm-hmm. first Gilded Age was trains, steel, yeah. oil, and it was around the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. And mm-hmm. Andrew Carnegie is one of the big players in this. 
And later in life, he became a, maybe the biggest philanthropist of all time. I'm not sure. In fact, actually, the Carnegie Corporation, which is some of that money he bequeathed, pays for some of my salary right, right now. Right, right. Um, but one thing he did is that he also built thousands of, of libraries mm-hmm. across the world, including here. Wow. In fact, right near our Samaritans branch, mm-hmm. there is the Lee Valley Library. Right. And next time you walk past it, you'll notice out the front it says Carnegie Library. Right. And built, I think, in 1889, mm-hmm. around that period. Mm-hmm. So wh- I would love to see uh, a regeneration of libraries mm-hmm. as social spaces, firstly as places for people to meet, communities to meet, mm-hmm. as ways of housing knowledge, which is what they've always done, libraries, mm-hmm. but also ways of capturing local knowledge mm-hmm. um, because we're losing so much of it. And, you know, there's lots of, Indigenous groups that are that are really passionate about doing this. There's languages in Australia that are being saved by, you know, in some instances only a few mm. individuals. Same in America. What if we had libraries built in these areas where, um, you know, and they could even be remote digitalized libraries where that knowledge is captured in ways that will preserve it for generations to come? Wow. Because that, you know, when someone finally sits down to write the whole history of humanity <laughs> after we've all disappeared... <laughs> All of that's part of it. Yeah. But at the moment, if yeah. you were to look back at this period from, say, two, three, four hundred years from now, mm. all you would see, and and so much of the, um, so much of the archive would be around this global science, mm. and it only tells part of the story. You and I, I mean, global science doesn't really play much role in our life. Very it does maybe when we pick up the phone or when we buy our latest iPhone or whatever it is, but but actually navigating our, our lives in East London, <laughs> right? And and the cultural practices that surround that is probably more relevant to us than, you know. Agree. With, with that in mind, if you could change anything about the status quo in relation to governments, truth, knowledge, information, pretty much almost everything that we've covered, what, mm. what, what would you change? It doesn't have to be one thing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I saw... I've thought about this question a lot, you know, if there's one thing or even a handful of things that you could do to effectively change the status quo. Um, there's this great uh, concept that that, um, um, that that I've heard recently and it's, it's, it's written by, it's what's, the, the, the notion is, is pathological path dependency and this is a description of the way that our, our current system works, mm-hmm. right? And that's not just states right we've got the uk it's mm-hmm. not just the international realm which is the un and climate bodies and whatever else but it's markets as well mm-hmm. and and path dependency which you're probably familiar with is mm-hmm. just this idea that things that have you know been structured and built in the past continue mm-hmm. through the present into the future mm-hmm. that things that are path dependent will sort of tend to follow as the name suggests a path mm-hmm. pathological path dependency is when um, these institutions, organizations um, generate ways of creating, um, of regenerating themselves, of ensuring their own importance, of ensuring their own existence. So you could probably say now that the state that we have here in, in Britain, uh, is its primary purpose is to perpetuate itself. Mm-hmm. And so how best to do that? And so ripping all of that apart may be really dangerous in the short term but actually we maybe need to do something similar or at least sort of rethink the structures that you know we we take so many things for granted Mm. so i'd love to see us maybe um 
step away. You know, I mean, one thing I was having a conversation with a colleague yesterday and I was like, why do we have a five-day work week? Yeah. <laughs> why, why is that a thing? And there's a whole history when you read into it, right? And it's around the, the conflict between labor and capital. And But but we, you and I were born into this five-day work week, mm-hmm. two-day weekend, and it feels like... I mean, it structures our lives in, yeah. in, in, in a really fundamental way. Yeah. But how often do you stop to think, what the hell are we doing? Why, why don't we have a four-day work week? Why don't we have a, a six-day yeah. week with a four-day weekend? You, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's mind-boggling. I mean, there'll be people that say, oh, well, you know, the economy would implode. and probably wouldn't, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, it would probably continue to, you know, tick over as it does now. Yeah. Um, but I think if I could change one thing, you know, I've really rambled on this answer, it would be just that we all question our assumptions mm. a little bit more. But also, and this is something I think we discussed last time we chatted, mm. um, is that we all took a little bit of time out for ourselves to reflect morally upon our own behavior and our own place in the world. And it seems as though we live in a world now where everything is accelerated mm. and we have less and less time. Uh, you know, we're, we're being pulled in multiple directions, whether it's family, whether it's work. And mm. with the pandemic, our work has encroached upon our family and home life in ways that it hadn't before. Um, there's a, a theorist, a German guy, uh, who's come up with this concept called frenetic standstill. Right. And the, the name itself really describes what it is, right? We're all frenetic in the way that we move through our lives now. Mm. But actually, fundamentally, we're standing still. And that applies just at the at the individual level mm-hmm. you and i mm-hmm. um but it also applies at the structural at level right is that uh, our societies are moving so quick now and the news cycle is so fast you know what did donald trump say yesterday what did yeah. he say today these things are churning ever ever faster mm. but nothing fundamental changes no structural change ever occurs mm. Uh, and then when maybe some kind of structural change does appear, Brexit's a good example, mm-hmm. um, it, it is so fraught and difficult mm-hmm. and complicated and complex that, and I think some of that can be solved, not all of it, but some of it can be solved mm-hmm. if we took some time individually to consider our roles morally and to reflect upon our behavior. I mean, how many times do you walk down the street now and you hear people beeping their horns and there's all these little microaggressions or people yelling at each other? Um, maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm a romantic, but I don't remember that being the case mm. 10, 15 years ago. Maybe that was also because I'm in Australia and the sun shines <laughs> there, people are happier. I don't know. Oh, yeah. oh, but, yeah. but I feel as though um, our lives are so full now and so fast now that... Even when we do something silly and stupid, we never have time to reflect on it and mm. learn from it mm. and to create a new version of yourself. Mm. And it would be good if we could do that. That is beautiful. And I think it links back to your uh, point earlier about expanding our moral universe mm. and making time for that universe to be expanded and yeah. uh, deliberate, being deliberate about that. And it's not a question of being hard on ourselves. I think, you know, in this country particularly, right, everyone's so hard on themselves. You Brits are... <laughs> really tough on themselves and their own worst critic all the time. I think people could give themselves a break, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, sit down after maybe we've said something stupid to a colleague or we've had an argument with a friend or a loved one, thinking about it, Mm. thinking about our role in it and thinking about the kind of character we're being in the story of our life. Mm. whether it's the hero, which Mm. let's face it, most of us like to think we're the hero, (laughs) but sometimes we're a villain too. 
it's not an easy story. It's not some some Hollywood Marvel story where you know the heroes are always known and the villains are always known. It's more complicated than that. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, that is beautiful. I think that's a that's a perfect way to to bring us to our last question. Mm. And before we do, I just want to say thank you for for making the time to speak to me today and in other days too because you know the conversations we've had in the past is is why we're we're here together today and um i'm really grateful you're you you made time to be here and share your thoughts with us last but not least i'll ask you the same question I ask every every guest of uh, this podcast w- what would you say is the most important lesson you've learned in your life that's worth sharing with the people listening today so this is I I I don't have any issue or, or problem answering this question, mm-hmm. and and I think it it applies to you mm-hmm. actually directly to you, mm-hmm. and and even the whole premise of this podcast really. Um, the biggest thing I've learned in my life is mm-hmm. that um, being interested, mm-hmm. or sorry, being interesting, mm-hmm. is almost entirely about being interested. And uh, I think curiosity is the most important trait that anyone can have. Mm-hmm. And you have that. You have that so in, you. in abundance. Yeah, I like yeah. to think I do. Yeah. And I, I'm gener- generally drawn to people that do have curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of belief, um, particularly in a big city like London, right, mm-hmm. where it's a very competitive place and people mm-hmm. are you know, at each other's throats. They want to <laughs> climb above each other. Yeah. And, and there's this sort of desire to be interesting mm. and and you see it in the way people dress you see it in the way people approach the world they want to present this image of the to the world of them as an interesting person mm. without recognizing that just sitting down and having a conversation and being interested and curious mm-hmm. in someone else's life makes you so interesting <laughs> right asking a question unbelievably i think in some ways makes you interesting that is uh, beautiful but isn't that, that true, is right? beautiful. I, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's it's part of the reason I was motivated to do something like this. And actually, thinking back to what you said, one of the things that motivated me to start this podcast is having experiences where there's so much precious information I'm hearing firsthand from human beings that are in my life that may not necessarily find themselves often in instances where their information, their perspective is being captured and documented. And similar to the feeling of what you described with small communities, you know specifically how to grow an avocado in one part, working with specific soil, etc. All of that information, I wanted to make sure that this is captured and mm. it's documented and someone can refer to it and, and listen. And uh, I'm really glad that you you made the time to, to, to allow me to capture your brilliant consciousness i mean any any opportunity to have a conversation with you is is, <laughs> is always one that i'll grab with both hands uh, um no absolutely and i think um you know you're one of the more curious people i know and it's 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 infectious actually i really think it's infectious and we probably need more people like that in the world Thanks. and i think also it's partly why you and i signed up to do this marathon oh yeah because oh, yeah. You know, I mean, listen, yeah, it looks great. I love telling people, yeah, I'm a Samaritan. I'm <laughs> such a such a wonderful person. Man, I get a lot out of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of the calls, right, you know, as, as I'm sure your listeners know by now, we don't talk about individual calls. But so many calls... Um, you know, I, you know, you answer the phone and, and you, you have a little exchange about what's going on that day. 
And so many times I get to a point, maybe a minute, two minutes mm-hmm. into a call, and I said, well, why don't you tell me your story? Mm-hmm. And everyone has a story. Oh, yeah. And I love hearing those stories. Mm-hmm. I love hearing them. Even the really sad ones. In fact, the sad ones are the ones you remember the most. Um, but uh, I think being curious about people and, and about their lives and about their stories is Absolutely. the most important thing. Absolutely. And I, I think there's something really special in being able to hold the space for someone to feel comfortable in telling telling you their story. I think that's something that, um, going back to what you mentioned in terms of the curiosity and asking questions, I think making space for people to feel like their stories matter. Mm. I think that's a really important thing for, mm. for people to be able to do and to yeah. carry forward. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Because we, I mean, really, we live in stories, don't we? Yeah. And not just on our own individual level, um, but, but societies live in stories. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was having a conversation about this the other day. You know, there's all these, so many things these days, right? You know, um, gender equality, uh, racial equality, and really what you th- when you when you boil it down, it's about the story of our society mm. changing so that there's new characters mm-hmm. that that people that don't look like me have have as e- an equal right to be a character in the story of this country. Mm-hmm. That's a really beautiful thing when you think about it. Agreed. Um, Agreed. And wow. we should we should embrace that more because that's really what it is that we're mm-hmm. talking about. Um, anyway. Wow, what a powerful point to finish on. Mm. Thank you so much, Peter. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye.